The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of government contracting. Amtower Off Center with your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. Uh, back with me today is Larry Allen, Allen Federal, A L L E N Federal.com. Uh, Larry, welcome back, man. Mark, great to be here. Thanks for having me in. Uh, we'll have fun once again. Uh, we're going to talk about a variety of things coming down the pike, uh, but we're going to start with uh, uh, a week or so back. I completed my biannual federal census on LinkedIn. So what I do is tally all of the agencies, the operating divisions, and the sub-agencies that are listed separately, DOD, civilian, IC, and the tally for this year comes up to 1.979 million, just a, really just a hair under that 2 million count for feds on LinkedIn. Larry, uh, the the LinkedIn has really become ubiquitous in the market. It's almost you can't live without it. Mark, that's really true. I've found that it's extremely good as a tool uh, on two fronts. One, I think the most obvious one is being able to link in with federal people that your company may be interested in. Uh, I've found myself uh, that federal leaders are willing to uh, be linked in with you if you've got uh, a reasonable closeness to them in terms of their jobs, in terms of what your job is, uh, and that can be a great way to uh, build your contact list uh, as a contractor. The other way is to uh, use it as a form to display just how smart you are. Uh, you establish your bona fides as experts in specific fields that you or your company want to be seen as experts in their number of forums, specifically on government contracting, government IT, uh, all kinds of things that are focused on specific segments of the federal market. They're great ways to share ideas, but they're also great ways to do your relationship development. That's a real critical component to federal success. Yeah, and you can also post just like blogging right there on your profile. But the other thing, you know, uh, in in the B2B world, account-based marketing has become the buzzword. I don't know why it's a buzzword because I hope it's been out there for ages because I've been doing it for ages. Uh, and a lot of people I know who've been doing it for ages. But in the government market, that's agency-based marketing. And I've been writing about this, uh, boy, uh, early newsletters in the 90s, um, you know, but on LinkedIn, you're able to target that agency. You're able to target the, the operating divisions within the agency, and the counts are extraordinary. Well, Mark, it, they're extraordinary because federal agencies want to do business with people who they are comfortable with, mm -hmm. people who they know or feel like uh, they understand their specific mission. And while on the outside, some of us may look at agency missions and say, well, there's a lot of commonality across a certain number of them. Inside the agencies, they believe that each one of their operations is unique and that they are different from the people next door uh, and certainly different from the people down the street. 
So being able to show that you understand the specific pain points inside of an office or department can be very important to being successful in terms of developing that relationship, developing that the, the sense that you really understand where that specific operation is uh, and that you're not just giving <clears throat> a generic federal market uh, promotion that goes across the board. Right. So you're, you're really fine-tuning your message. And, um, you know, you talk about a lot. Specific agencies use specific contracts. Well, several contracts also have their own groups on LinkedIn. Soup, uh, NITAC has one for their 3GWAX. I, I think there's one. I'm not positive about this, but I think there's there is one for Alliant. Right. I know because I'm in it. Right. So, mm-hmm. and, and I try to post there on a regular basis because I want to get in front. So if if you're not on one of these vehicles and you need access to it, here's a great way to get in front of some of the primes. It is. Uh, and, you know, these are specific vehicles. And if you're in the IT marketplace, it's important to remember that 50% of the federal IT spend goes through one of these standing vehicles so being able to interact with people on Alliant, on the NIH site, on the Soup site, those are all important ways to getting some visibility and possibly developing some partnerships that will enable your company to use those contracts as a sales platform. Yeah. One final point on the LinkedIn. Uh, this is totally unscientific, but it's, it's borne out from the three censuses that I've done on the uh, on the federal population on LinkedIn, fifteen percent plus of the uh, feds on LinkedIn have an IT related job title. Forty percent are program, project, or upper management level, and about five percent are senior management level. Um, so I, I I can verify that purely by uh, uh, by experience. So. Uh, again, the people that you want to be uh, speaking with, particularly those people that might have a deputy CIO or associate CIO or program manager title, uh, the ones that are going to be not at the top because uh, they're not really the ones who are going to likely talk to most contractors. It's going to be that 40% that you just mentioned, Mark. So uh, there's plenty of opportunity here for contractors to develop their LinkedIn presence uh, and use it as a springboard for business. Indeed. So let's migrate. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have David Shea from the Office of Smart Card Management on uh, on the show. But let's do a quick update. The the NDAA uh, uh, bumped the thresholds for uh, for cards. Um, you you remember uh, back when you were running the coalition? I used to speak at your uh, your annual conference, and I would always weasel in you know the credit card stats because uh, back then you know uh, credit card action for commodity vendors, which was largely uh, GSA schedule uh, vehicles, right. uh, was huge. And and in the early '90s, the mid '90s, I brought in open market vendors. And ramp them up to low, low eight figures on 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 uh, pure open market, but credit card sales. Right, and that was back, Mark, when I think the the micro purchase cap was either two thousand or twenty five hundred dollars. Yeah, 
and now it's $5,000 per purchase for the Department of Defense and $10,000 per purchase for civilian agencies. Uh, that's a new level, as you said, but right on the heels of that, Mark, we had GSA come back to Congress earlier this year and ask for Congress to increase the level again, this time to $25,000 across the board. That used to be a warrant card, man. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, back, when, back when I started with this, $25,000 was the simplified acquisition threshold. Uh, not anymore. So we're talking about uh, some real money, and we're starting to see... Uh, non-traditional government contractors really get active in the market in this part of the market because you can do a lot of $1,000, $2,000, even $5,000 transactions. Uh, those are typically the greatest number of transactions that federal agencies will do. And after a while, that money really does add up. And you don't have to have a contract presence in order to drive that business, uh, a number of companies are putting together purchase card-oriented strategies for the micro-purchase threshold. Yeah, and I, th I think it's a tribute to David Shea's education program that we haven't in several years now read about any of the snafus uh, of card abuse. Uh, and I think that's one of the big reasons why Congress and in, in the NDAA uh, uh, allowed the threshold to rise. Right. Well, David's been in charge of this program at GSA for a number of years, Mark, as you know, and his leadership, I think, is invaluable to the agency uh, and to the program across government. Uh, there probably isn't anything he hasn't seen, and as a result, there probably isn't much he hasn't anticipated uh, in terms of managing this program. Historically, the government purchase card program has had an enviably low incident of fraud, waste, and abuse. Of course, you don't want any, but when you have a big program, whether it's government program or a large Fortune 500 company purchase card program, people being people, you're always going to have some things going astray. But when you compare the government purchase card program against any one of its large uh, commercial market uh, cousins, the government program always comes out ahead in terms of a low incidence of uh, misspent and misallocated money. Yep. And in cases where there is misallocated money, there are substantial precedents for where the people who have acted improperly have been held accountable. Yeah. And as you know, I, it was probably five or six years ago when David started telling me we're going to have this chip technology embedded into the car to en enhance security. And uh, I think the government was ahead of the consumer world. Uh, I know they were ahead of the consumer world on this. The one other point before we go, in FY17, the federal government, due to credit card, uh, excuse me, charge card activity, they pay it off every month. So it's not a credit card. They're not rolling this. They pay it <laughs> off. But they get rebates because they pay it off every month. In 2017, that approached $300 million dollars in card rebates from the three banks that are most responsible for this. That's pretty damn cool. That's very good, and it's not something, it's a good news story, Mark, and of course good news stories sometimes compete for air time, but it's good to mention it here uh, because it really is something that the government is doing right. <clears throat> and I know that the purchase card uh, issuers have worked very, very closely with David and his GSA team 
for a number of years on things like cutting-edge technology, making sure that the government knows what's coming in terms of best practices and security so that the government's had that ability to uh, negotiate for low rates, good rebates, but also to be one of the leading-edge security uh, implementers, at least as far as U.S.-based charge card activity is concerned. Yeah, and that's why David's coming back, so we can get the whole update. And uh, one other item there, uh, SmartPay 3 will be, uh, the RFP will be out this uh, late this fall, early this winter, and it'll be interesting to see if any new bank entrants come in here. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, we, we there's technically there's four, but only three, three of them are, see action. Right. And of those, only two get significant action. And like usual, there is one bull moose in the shop. So we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Larry and I shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Uh, I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here again with Larry Allen. Larry Allen can be found on LinkedIn or at Allen, A-L-L-E-N, federal.com. His weekly newsletter comes out usually Monday morning. Uh, tennis. Uh, I would suggest you go to Larry's site and sign up for it. It's a very short read, usually uh, three or four bullet paragraphs that will take you back to the website if you want to read more. But there are always interesting issues that most contractors should be aware of. So, Larry, let's let's talk about the uh, uh, the e-commerce project a bit. Uh, where where are we? Well, Mark, this is the GSA-led and OMB-advised uh, Section 846 e-commerce uh, procurement portals uh, project, the one that was mandated by Congress in the 2018 Defense Authorization Act. And uh, basically, this is GSA's initiative to uh, introduce e-commerce portals into government acquisition, things like um, Amazon, Overstock, Kayak, uh, and a whole number of other e-com- potential e-commerce platforms across uh, government with the idea to make commercial item acquisition easier. So GSA came out uh, with their Phase 1 report a little while ago. They are in the midst of uh, doing research. They're in Phase 2, and they recently spoke at a Coalition for Government Procurement event Uh, that was kind of the coming out party to initiate phase two of this project. And what was remarkable to me is that uh, the GSA and OMB team really are trying to interact with industry, uh, all types of industry, whether it's a traditional government contractor like a GSA schedule holder, a, a small business, or some potential new market entries that could be the platform providers Uh, The agency really seems interested in getting uh, information from all sides. And, of course, that also includes government agencies. So they're going to take between this past March, just concluded, and next March to conduct market research. And at the end of that time, they're going to have to come out with a Phase 2 report to Congress. So if you are interested in how your agency, if you're a Fed, can use one of these platforms properly. We know that some agencies are using them now. Whether they're doing it properly is a very open question. 
uh, or if you're a government contractor who's concerned about the impact of this project on your business or one of those platform providers that might be interested, between now and March is your time to talk to GSA and OMB about what's on your mind. They really do want to hear from you. Okay. Um, but, you know, what, what's the difference between this and, you know, CDW, which has a huge e-commerce portal? Uh, you know, name, name the product, uh, commodity product vendor that doesn't. Um, well, you're you're right on with there with that, Mark. And it's CDWG is one example. Staples is another example. Uh, uh, in some of the uh, you know some of the mechanical areas, some of the janitorial areas, there are other companies that run sure. their Granger. own Granger. That's the one that run their own websites. Uh, this uh, whole project was started because uh, Congress wanted to find a way to. I guess, centralize and bring some oversight uh, to uh, activity that may already be going on, that is already going on with these commercial sites. It's about a couple of things, Mark. One, this project, it's about ease of use, certainly. But, you know, as you pointed out, you get the ease of use with or without this project. But it's also about getting the spend analysis uh, on what government agencies are spending and whether or not they're getting uh, good deals uh, so I think that, uh, and it's also really all about <clears throat> making sure that even though there are very few rules that come into play when you're making smaller dollar purchases, there are a couple, uh, like Ability One and Federal Prison Industries, mandatory source issues that have to be addressed. Uh, federal Prison Industries, well, the chop shop trainer? The, well, I, you know, you don't hear so much <laughs> about Federal Prison Industries on this specific front. But you do hear a lot from the Ability One community yeah. about commercial e-commerce platforms and some of the one-off deals that government agencies have signed with Amazon in this case, not to pick on them. It just happens to be that they're the company that was signed up. Uh, and uh, there's some concern, I think legitimately so, that uh, while buyers may be getting the ease of use, they're not. Uh, doing their uh, ability one due diligence. It's not Amazon's job, at least I don't think, right. to make sure that agencies are following their own procurement rules. Uh, but I'm not sure that anybody is. So that's another reason why this GSA-led initiative is important. Uh, GSA is working to figure out how to incorporate uh, applicable rules and also what rules might be applicable to the government-wide use of commercial acquisition platforms with the idea that uh, their solution will be the one that is uh, the accepted solution, the one that agencies can be sure that when they're buying from that platform or those platforms, because I think there'll definitely be more than one, that they're not only getting a good deal and they're not only getting fast service, that they're also not going to have an IG or a Congressional Oversight Committee come after them for uh, not using small businesses or not using a, a mandatory source uh, in compliance with existing procurement rules. You know, it's important to consider. Uh, so uh, the next up is GSA actually moving aggressively, I think. Uh, they want to start to roll out a pilot project sometime in 2019 uh, with one or more platforms uh, to test different models and GSA is looking at three different models. They're looking at 
a model where you have a company that is selling its own items, like a, a Granger, for example, that right. sells the items in its catalog online. They're looking at uh, ag- the aggregator model, somebody that doesn't really sell anything itself, but it aggregates on a commercial e-commerce platform uh, solutions and products from other companies. Uh, and then they're looking at the model where you have a company that sells maybe its own branded items, but also the items of other companies as well uh, through its own platform. So those are three basic models uh, that GSA has identified in the commercial marketplace that they'd like to see uh, how they work in the government sector. And so we may find that we may start to find that out by the end of next year. Okay. Um I don't mean to pick on it, but I'll pick on it. So does is this an acknowledgement that GSA Advantage really doesn't work? Well, I think it's certainly – I think if you were even asked the people in GSA, they would uh, tell you that GSA Advantage has been a great system, but that its time is up. <laughs> and it was really the forerunner of some of the commercial e-commerce platforms. You know, Advantage, uh, definitely old enough to vote. Uh, over 18 years old, uh, probably it can even have a drink and a cigarette because it's over 21, uh, which means it's uh, time to probably put that marketplace out to pasture and to, uh, instead of rebuilding a government-only or a government-unique platform, have use of readily available commercial alternatives. Well, you know, it would be a benefit to the uh, uh, GSA schedule vendors not to have to go through the hassle of putting all of their stuff up and keeping it current on Advantage if um, if they didn't have to. Well, that's right, but it poses interesting issues because what does it mean for the schedules program? Uh, these commercial e-commerce platforms, Mark, are probably going to be open to a host of companies, whether they're schedule contractors or not. Uh, which poses some interesting questions about how you make sure you're doing business with an authorized reseller of an OEM's product. Uh, That's not an issue on the schedule, typically. Uh, But uh, if you're, I think we're going to see the ascension of uh, companies' government-only websites. Certainly most companies have those, but they're not always an integrated part of how those companies approach business maybe partially because of GSA Advantage, maybe because they don't feel their buyers buy that way. Uh, but hello, they are yeah. buying that way. Yeah. And if you're not using GSA Advantage, yay, you don't have to populate a system that, you know, for most schedule contractors is uh, at best a catalog where somebody might find you. At worst, it's an onerous burden that you have to put all of your items on and populate it, and GSA can use the pricing against you later on. Uh, but if you're not doing Advantage, that doesn't uh, exonerate you from doing having an e-commerce presence. Right. So, I mean, just, just to, to stretch that a little bit, early on, uh, we didn't see adoption of credit card holders using websites for purchasing. But with uh, further research, we found out that they were indeed using it for purchasing. But because of back then, you were talking mid to late 90s, early 2000s, their discomfort with using plastic on the web, they were picking up the 800 number while they were looking at the website. Right, right. I understand that still happens, but yeah, yes. I mean there there's there's still reticence out there, and you know deservedly so, considering you know <laughs> what 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 is not hackable. 
That's right. Just ask Mr. Zuckerberg how he fared recently spending two days before various congressional committees. My favorite thing. Um, (laughs) You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Larry and I shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Larry Allen. And uh, we just had a wonderful conversation between takes that probably is not arable, but, <laughs> but we always do. That's right. <laughs> My wife says, who do you have on the show? I'm going to go have fun with Larry for an hour and a half. She says, the show's only take 40 minutes to record. And I go, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. So... Um, so I'm get reading reading my email. I get my JD Supra every day, and I'm new rules for bid protests. And I'm going, whoa, dude, GAO's doing what? Well, Mark, GAO uh, has had to uh, come out with some reforms for how they handle bid protests uh, for a couple of reasons. One is uh, they've been getting uh, just from a handful, a really small handful of contractors, a large number of frivolous protests. In fact, they've had to put. I think two companies now on hold for filing protests simply because every other day, <laughs> every other day they were filing a protest, and that gums up the works. Uh, but also because uh, the complexity of some of the protests that they're dealing with, uh, and maybe the overall numbers, depending on who you believe from year to year, uh, go up. But certainly, the what is undeniable is that the average dollar amount that's in play in a given protest has gone up because. Uh, contractors uh, are more likely now to protest things at medium and higher dollar volumes simply because there are uh, fewer of those opportunities than there had been uh, half a dozen years ago. So probably the biggest rule that came out of the GAO pronouncement is a nominal $350 filing fee that you now have to pay if you want to file your protest at GAO. People in the legal community I've spoken with, Mark, tell me that this is uh, more in line with what you would have to do if you went to an actual court. Uh, keep in mind that GAO technically is a legislative branch body. Right, not an executive. Not a, not a <clears throat> judicial branch uh, entity. And uh, if you're filing in district court or the Court of Federal Claims, uh, there are filing fees. So now there is a filing fee at GAO as well. And the idea is to make sure that... It's only 350 bucks, but it may, you know, if you're filing a protest every other day, it may make you think. may make you think. And also, while you technically don't have to have an attorney, most people do, but I suspect that a lot of these smaller protests, the ones that may (coughs) or may not have merit to them, uh, are done without benefit of counsel. So... Uh, companies trying to protest on the cheap, well, now it just got a little bit more expensive. You have to actually make a business decision about whether or not you're going to protest. In addition, uh, you have to – There, I think GAO is generally moving in the direction – because most of the protests do have legal counsel representation, uh, there's an electronic filing system rule that you have to use. Again, this is consistent – it's the same system that's used in the federal court system. So while you as a government contractor don't have to be aware of it necessarily, your counsel certainly probably already uses it all the time. Uh, but if you're going to go without counsel to uh, the GAO, then you have to become familiar with this electronic filing system. 
uh, as of May 1st of this year. Uh, you have five days to respond to a protester's request for documents if you're a government agency. If that falls on a weekend, then it's the preceding business day that you uh, have. Uh, so it give, tells agencies, look, you do have to actually uh, give over documents that uh, counsel for the protester <clears throat> might want, but you have a certain number of days that uh, sometimes can work in your favor if they ask for it on a Friday, then uh, surprise, you only have a couple of business days to respond to them. Uh, again, this is all towards making the GAO protest process slightly more formal, slightly more judicial-like. Uh, you have to, if you're a protester, uh, you have to file comments on your agency's response within uh, 10 days if you're seeking reimbursement costs for your protest. Uh, so, and often that's a key part. If you, quote, win, unquote, your protest, uh, you might be able to get uh, legal fees from uh, whoever you're protesting against. So, uh, an important timely consideration. So, I think there are a whole group of rules that have come out from the GAO uh, all attempting to make the process more transparent, uh, making sure that GAO can hit its 100-day uh, adjudication benchmark, and it, and it usually <coughs> does, but I think these are aimed at making sure that it will continue to do so, aimed at uh, making it a little bit more like an actual judicial process uh, so that uh, there's greater commonality from platform to platform. I don't necessarily. I think these changes net netted out, Mark, are a good thing. I don't think that they're going to discourage legitimate protests. Uh, look, a protest is going to cost you somewhere around thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars in legal fees. A three hundred fifty-dollar filing fee is not going to be your tipping point uh, determination if you've got a legitimate protest right. there. Uh, similarly. Uh, the rules that GAO came out with are aimed to not just help the government, but to really help the protesters understand the process, understand what they're entitled to. Some of these things, like the instructions for getting cost reimbursement, aren't terribly new, but they are reminders to uh, protesters about what their rights are. And I think that uh, I, th I think GAO did a good thing in, in setting these out. Okay. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, <clears throat> we, we're going to talk about hub zones in a minute, but tied into this are the new uh, debriefing rules for DOD contractors. And, you know, um, uh, the debriefings have always been kind of a, a two-edged sword, at least uh, uh, on, on the appearance side for some contractors. If I go in for a debrief or, or you know, are they going to be honest with me? Are they going to hold it against me that I made them do this? Blah, blah, blah. Um, deal with that issue first and then talk about the new new post-award debriefing. So the whole – right. And you're right. If you were to ask any government contractor, any government contractor that happens to be randomly walking by the studio, they would tell you that the typical debriefing today doesn't provide much information, that – the intent 
that Congress had several years ago when it originally passed the debriefing rule for commercial item acquisitions has not been fulfilled. Contracting officers don't like giving debriefings generally. Almost all debriefings today are done by the phone. Uh, I've heard uh, some companies tell me that their debriefing may last only 10 minutes. So that's enough to, not really enough to give you any information. It certainly does create the impression that all things being equal, the contracting officer would prefer not to have to give you a debriefing, even though for FAR Part 12 and the, the new rule talks about FAR Part 15 uh, acquisitions. Uh, so uh, if you're a contractor, you might hesitate to ask for a debriefing, although you, know, you will, most of them still do, even though you know you're not going to get very much. But a lot of people, Mark, will get, ask for the debriefing and then figure, well, we're really just going to have to protest anyway if we want to find out why we lost and what the agency did. And uh, the intent of the debrief legislation originally was to reduce the number of protests that were filed specifically so that an unsuccessful offeror could figure out what happened. Yeah. And so now we have the new DOD rule that uh, was bought about by Congress. Congress actually told DOD, no, we're serious <laughs> about you actually providing quality information in a debriefing. So we have the new rule that uh, DOD came out with uh, in late March, and it talks about its enhanced protest award, post-award debriefing rights. And they really are intended, if you read through these, which Mark and I read through them so you don't have to, uh, but uh, we read through these so that the intent of the debriefing, the new DOD debriefing rules, again, they cover FAR Part 15 procurements. That's procurement by negotiation. Uh, but a lot of the GWACs that we talk about here, like Alliant and Oasis, are FAR Part 15 contracts. So those types of buys would be covered by this new debriefing rule. Right, especially when we're right. seeing billion-dollar task orders. So. Right, and uh, the <clears throat> intent of the rule could not be clear. And what it tells contracting officers is, contracting officers, we are really serious that you have to provide quality information in a debriefing to tell the offer why they were unsuccessful, what was deficient. Uh, you have to spend more than five minutes on the phone with them. Uh, you have certain time periods in which you are uh, obligated to provide a debriefing. Uh, the rule also talks about when the protest clock starts ticking, it increases some flexibility. It used to be that uh, if you, uh, if the government offered you a protest, uh, a debriefing rather, if the government offered you a debriefing on Wednesday and you said, great, but I can't do it till Friday, that the clock started ticking on Wednesday because that was the day you were first offered the debriefing. Now there's some more flexibility <coughs> in this rule. Mm here that gives you the opportunity, uh, a little bit more time. Of course, my advice still to contractors is if that you're really looking for a stay of work on this, uh, even though you might have 10 days under the protest rules to file, the earlier you get your protest in, the more likely you are to get a stay of work. But again, the new rules here, the new DOD rules address that and it tells the contracting officer at DOD very clearly that there's no work to be initiated during the debriefing process so that 
a contractor's rights are, an unsuccessful contractor's rights are being protected. So you don't get a debriefing to understand why you lost, and then you can file a protest. Oops, too late. We already started the project. Yeah. Uh, so did you really win? Well, you know, you won the fact that you were right, but you didn't get the chance to recompete the business. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and you know, it. it how likely is this to carry over to civilian agencies if this if this seems to work? Well, Mark, that's a, a very good point. My belief is that this will become a best practice and that what, what may very soon happen will be that if DOD contracting officers follow the rule here and do give more quality debriefings, they respond in writing as the rule says they should, uh, that protests here will start to go down and that if uh, other agencies see protest rates dropping for DOD, they'll be uh, strongly encouraged to adopt the same rules. Similarly, if I'm a contractor and I know I'm going to get a quality debriefing at DOD, but I'm not going to get one from a civilian agency, I'm going to have my attorney on auto dial so that if I need to file a protest after my 10-minute unuseful debriefing, I can do that. Uh, and it won't take very long before agencies across the board figure out that this process, even though it's more time-consuming in one aspect, overall, it really does shorten your acquisition time. And it'll save you Save you costs. a lot of money, save yeah. you a lot of headaches. If you spend a half an hour or 45 minutes debriefing a contractor and giving them quality information, you have exponentially reduced the likelihood that they will turn around and protest because you didn't give them enough information that they can go back to their senior management team and tell them what happened. And if you head off the protest, guess what? You get to proceed with your procurement. You get to implement that requirement right away. You don't have to wait for 100 days until GAO does its thing. And that's a tremendous savings to you, and it also is a tremendous uh, boost to the efficiency of whatever mission you're trying to support. So you can't just look at the debriefing as a burden on your time, although I certainly understand that it is, but you have to look at it in the larger scheme of how your agency is trying to accomplish its mission. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com. When we come back, we're going to wrap up on some changes to hub zones. Back in a minute. Welcome back to federalnewsradio.com and 15. Let's start again, Larry. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with fellow adjunct professor at George Washington University, Larry Allen. Uh, we both teach in the graduate school, uh, Master's of Science in Government Contracting, because uh, um, it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. Enjoy it. Um yeah, and and you know it pushes my boundaries because I teach marketing, you teach contracts, and and uh, you know they they keep coming up with my students keep coming up with stuff that really pushes me. So no, absolutely, it's great to have the uh, the next generation of eleven o twos and contracting specialists come up the 
come up through a program and get good education. Yeah, yeah. And I, I even get 1102s in my class, which is marketing to the government. Right. So uh, that's kind of interesting because I can ask them questions about how, how they get influenced, which is cool. But that's not the point of this uh, last segment here. Larry, there's a couple of changes at the uh, the hub zones, starting with uh, the, the hub zone maps are frozen until uh, December 2020 or yeah 2021. That's right, Mark. Uh, the Hub Zone program is one of the government's socioeconomic programs. Hub stands for historically underutilized business. So a Hub Zone is one that's located in a historically underutilized business area. Uh, it's a popular program uh, with government agencies. Uh, it's a popular program with government contractors. Uh, one of the reasons behind this uh, freeze, which I think is a good move by the Small <clears throat> Business Administration, is that uh, the program's been working. <laughs> and you have people who uh, located their businesses and made investments in specific areas that did not have good economic activity beforehand or uh, were maybe needed to be uh, uh, gentrified or uh, rehabilitated. And uh, the program worked. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is once the program worked, the area where that business had invested in and was located was no longer designated as a hub zone. Right. <laughs> Dollars go up, the values go up, the that's hub zone that. disappears. Right. As a hub zone de- classification disappears. And so the company that had made the investment that had hired people, because that's part of the hub zone requirement, that you actually hire a certain number of employees from that specific area, uh, those companies were taking a hit. They were now disadvantaged. They're like, well, wait, we followed the rules. We did everything that you said we were supposed to do. And then, whoop, you know, sorry, you're no longer in that area and you're going to be competing even up with everybody else, which, of course, then discourages economic activity. So what the SBA said is, wait a minute, we're going to put the brakes on classifying or declassifying uh, any hub zone activity because we actually want to have an opportunity for this program to take effect. We want the footholds that have been established to have time to really deepen and flourish before we start decertifying areas. (laughs) Right, which is likely to drive them back into where they were before. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so I think this is a very common-sense approach, Mark. Mark, As you mentioned, uh, everything is frozen now until December of 2021. That gives small business hub zones really the opportunity to deepen their roots. It gives them an opportunity to hone their competitiveness. It also tells them, look, you've got a little more than three years uh, to put a foundation together and to get uh, your house in a row so that you know eventually you may not be designated in a hub zone area. Just like if you're an 8A, you can graduate. But... We, the SBA, are not going to turn the lights out on you overnight. Right. So you've got some time to figure it out. You've got some time to plan your business strategy. You've got some time to develop your partnerships and your federal business portfolio. I think that's a fair shake for companies. And uh, it's not automatic that when December 2021 comes up that everything's just going to change. But now you know that it could so you better plan your business accordingly. Right, but you got three and a half years, right. so that that's not a bad window. The other change with the uh, the Hub Zone program 
is the ownership requirements, which is uh, um, pretty interesting as well. It is, and the overall intent of this change, Mark, is to give some flexibility to the Hub Zone program. Again, it's a, uh, as we mentioned, it's a very popular program. In some cases, second only to service-disabled, veteran-owned small businesses, depending on the agency uh, you're talking to. The idea on the ownership changes is that the owners don't actually have to be in the area, physically located in the area where the hub zone business is. You can be an owner of a hub zone business but live elsewhere and be in business elsewhere. Uh, you can either be uh, not in the United States. Um, I think that's true. You have to be me. a United States citizen. That's what yeah. the rules say. But, you know, not living here, that one, that one, that one threw me through a loop. Right. So you can be achieved, uh, hub zone status, it says, can be achieved whether ownership by U.S. citizens is direct or indirect. So that tells me that uh, you have to be a U.S. citizen. Your hub zone has to be located you know, physically in one of these areas. But you do not have to live in the specific geographic area that the hub zone uh, business is located in. But 51% of the employees do. But 51% of the employees still do. And you, the owner, has to control at least 51% of the business, and uh, you have to be a U.S. citizen in order to uh, comply with the rules. But again, the idea here is to bring some flexibility. Uh, the program's working well. It's achieving its intent. What the SBA is saying here is that, look, you can, uh, as long as you're a U.S. citizen, you can live in another part of the state or another state and uh, still, if you own 51% of that business, still have your business qualify as a hub zone as long as it's in the right place. Okay. Um, we're about out of time. You got any final thoughts? My final thoughts, Mark, are as we're putting this together, we are well nigh coming up on the release of money that Congress appropriated almost a month ago. It is definitely time for drivers to start their engines. Uh, if your agency is telling you in three weeks' time that they don't have their budgets yet, that's probably an excuse, not a reason. Plan accordingly. Uh, it should be around the first part of May when agencies get their budgets. So uh, there's going to be some real buying activity for the next six months. Cool. Um or five months. Five months. May. Well, well all May you through know, September. Almost. Yeah. Six. Car carries into October always. Right. Uh, you know, so we, we see the uh, uh, minor spike there as well. Right. Or the residual spike. <laughs> so, um, Larry, thanks for coming in, man. Uh, Larry does consult with companies on various aspects of government contracting. So if this is an area where you need help, give them a shout again. Find them at allenfederal.com. I advise companies on the marketing side of doing business with the government, and uh, I continually train individuals and company on leveraging LinkedIn. So if you need help there, drop me a line at mark at federaldirect.net. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. 
Amtower Off Center, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. E-commerce merchants, does consistent monthly growth while hitting ROI goals sound good? Here at AdRoll, our customers constantly let us know it feels good. AdRoll helps you attract new customers and bring shoppers back to finish the sale. Integrate your e-commerce store with AdRoll and manage display, social media, and native advertising all in one place. Sounds good, right? See the difference. Visit AdRoll.com to get started today.